Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 388, The Battle of Bir Hakim, The Redemption of French Honor. Last time, as Rommel correctly anticipated General Ritchie's eastern attack on the cauldron, the contest was over rather quickly, which allowed the Axis forces to swing south of the Allied thrust and hit various Allied positions, including two divisional headquarters, two brigadier headquarters, and several battalions. To be sure, General Norrie had ordered up the 2nd Armored Brigade to turn Rommel back, but because of a mistaken order, they went to an area not under threat, nor where the Panzers were heading. The destruction of the 150th Brigade Group had only been the start. By now, at least another 175 tanks had been lost, and the Desert Fox was not yet done. It may be remembered that Rommel's goal for the immediate future was the capture of Tobruk. With that in Axis hands, supplies could be brought some 600 miles or 965 kilometers closer to the front by sea, a game-changer in today's parlance. Now, hindsight allows us to know that Rommel had no intention of stopping at Tobruk, per his orders, but who punishes a winner? The German general was not too worried about repercussions. The here and now was all. The free French at Bir Hachim, or Bir Hakim as it was also known, had his complete attention. To give the free French their due, considering what they are about to accomplish, which affected the wider war in the Mediterranean, certainly that of Malta, it's necessary to back up a bit. As General Ritchie of 8th Army Command was still gearing up for his offensive, it was decided to fight a defensive battle against Rommel. After all, no one could stop him from trying to drive east, thus it was decided to let him come all this way, wasting time and fuel, and then take out his armor. General Claude Auchinleck, C&C Middle East, believed that Rommel would hit the center of the Gaza Line with a feint to the south, whereas Ritchie believed it would be the opposite. Rommel, for his part, thought that the enemy would anticipate him striking at the center and, as was his wont, gave the enemy what they thought he would do, namely a feint to the center, while circling around the southern or allied left flank. This had worked well enough, and now much of the armor of Africa Corps was behind the main defensive line, with its supply line intact. But early in the Battle of Gazala, The Germans and Italians had come upon the Free French at Bir Hakim, but these defenders had held out, having taken many mines from Tobruk. Now, this, in itself, had upset the larger Axis plan, as Rommel was told to take Tobruk in late May. Then Malta would be invaded from Sicily, and then the Africa Corps would be free to push on deep into Egypt. Between Malta falling and the panzers on Cairo's doorstep, Soon Alexandria would fall, and the Mediterranean would become, fully, an access possession. Still, the Free French did not get that memo, and were holding out. But Rommel did not have time to waste. Thus, the Allied troops at Bir Hakim had to be surrounded, cut off, and bypassed, which allowed the Panzers to cause all kinds of havoc for 8th Army further north and to the northeast. And yet, not all that Rommel wanted had been accomplished. For example, the 90th Light Division had reached El Abdin, 
just south of Tobruk, but they were soon chased away. Still, it had almost worked. Now running out of fuel, Rommel had the Italians open up two paths through the minefield near the southern end of the defensive line. Yet, that Bir Hakim position continued to hold them up. Just like 8th Army could not freely dash to Tripoli until the panzers were wiped out, Rommel could not focus on Tobruk until Bir Hakim was his, in order to keep a line of retreat open. Bir Hakim was about 13 miles or 21 kilometers south of where the doomed 150th Brigade Group was. Thus, neither side could assist the other when attacked. Thus, the 150th was destroyed, and the Free French spent their days, which went on and on, keeping at bay the series of attacks that came their way. Bir Hakim, which translates to Old Man's Well, was a point where two Bedouin paths crossed. The water was long gone, but the Allies kept it going, and before the Battle of Gazala, some 50,000 mines surrounded the location. In mid-February 1942, the 150th Brigade had moved out, and the Free French, under General Koenig, had moved in, under the larger command of 30th Corps, General Willoughby Norrie's Corps. As covered, there were about 3,700 men there of the 13th Semi-Brigade, or Half-Brigade, of the French Foreign Legion, and of the 2nd Colonial Semi-Brigade, mostly, of new volunteers. Just before the Battle of Gazala had kicked off, Bir Hakim had some 1,200 entrenchments, foxholes, underground bunkers, and gun emplacements, and they would be tested. The overall Battle of Gazala got underway at 2 p.m. on May 26th. It may be remembered that the Panzers of the 15th, 21st, some of the 90th Light, and the Ariete divisions swung just below Bir Hakim, taking point 171, just south of the Free French, at 6.30 a.m., the second day of the attack. With this successful capture of the point, which had been under General Koenig, he now had 440 fewer men, and most of the equipment they had was lost. This point was being guarded as it was to have been a fallback for Bir Hakim, should it be needed. However, the panzers were already behind the defensive line, the minefield, and Bir Hakim. Soon after this outpost fell, the 7th Motor Brigade nearby was forced to retreat, now unable to support the Free French. Now that the Free French were isolated, three medium tank battalions of the 132nd Tank Infantry Regiment of the Ariete Division came closer from the northeast. When they were in position, about 60 tanks of the 9th Battalion, led by Colonel Pristimone, charged ahead. This attack started at 8.15 a.m. that same morning of May 27th. Obviously, this had been pre-planned. But within minutes of the charge the 9th Tank Battalion had lost 31 Panzers to mines. Still pressing, Presti Simone did manage to get 10 tanks through the minefield, but they were then met with 75mm anti-tank shells. Soon, those 10 Panzers were wrecked hulls, along with 124 Italian casualties. With this attack failing, the rest of the 9th Tank Battalion rejoined the Ariete Division further afield. 
Soon, the rejoined Ariete division was on its way north to catch up to Rommel. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The next day, May 28th, General Ritchie had the Desert Air Force get involved. They attacked the panzers near El Abdin, who were trying to get to the southern perimeter of Tobruk, and the Axis forces near Bir Hakim. Alas, over the Free French, the clouds were heavy, and this caused inaccurate bombing that actually hit some of their Allied positions. Turns out, two wrecked Italian panzers inside the perimeter had been spotted and were aimed for, but again, this only caused Allied casualties. Once the air attack was over, General Koenig had the men go out and pull those damaged tanks away from his area. That same day, May 28th, as it was clear to Brigadier C.W. Hayden of 150th Brigade Group that he and his were about to be attacked, Koenig sent a Free French column his way that morning. But the Free French ran into concentrated Italian artillery fire. The French column would end up turning around, back for Bir Hakim, but not before destroying seven half-tracks. As the French column had given worse than it got, though only through self-defense, the next day, May 29th, Koenig sent out a column, on purpose, exactly to get the Panzer's attention, as there were still some in the area, whose job it was to keep any other Allied help away. This attack, led by Captain Gabriel de Sagli, managed to take out those panzers. A good day's work. Also, the Free French got excited, more like relieved, when they heard that planes from the Desert Air Force stopped two groups of Junker Ju-88 dive bombers from reaching their position. They even mixed it up with the escorting fighters, showing their determination to keep Bir Hakim safe. The Air Force had been ordered by Ritchie to practically adopt the Free French. While this was going on, a unit of fighter bombers hit two Axis supply lines, south and east of Bir Hakim, respectively. Perhaps, it was hoped, Rommel would be unwilling to pay the price to bring his panzers too close to Bir Hakim again. Then General Koenig got a gift, of sorts. As mentioned earlier, .171 had been overrun, and among the men there had been the 3rd Indian Motor Brigade. Hundreds 
were taken prisoner. But as time went by and the Axis found that they did not have enough water for these POWs, the Germans and Italians let them go. Some 600 of them reached Bir Hakim. Yes, there were now more men to man the defenses, but Koenig did not have enough water either. And the French general was so sure that he would be ordered to retreat, it was the only sensible thing to do, Koenig had refused massive amounts of fresh supplies before being encircled, because he believed it would just be more weight to carry. Also on May 30th, another French detachment was sent out, but this time to replace the mines that caused the Ariete to give up after penetrating the perimeter. But Rommel had been smart enough to have men on the lookout, and soon the detachment was running back inside, seeking safety from the shelling. Fortunately for Koenig, on May 31st, 50 supply trucks reached his destination. They dropped off water, and they took some of the former stranded Indians, POWs, and seriously wounded to safer territory, further east. Meanwhile, the Desert Air Force was doing what it could over Bir Hakim and to its east, but not over the doomed 150th Brigade. It was overrun on June 1st, with the British losing 16 aircraft to the Axis 9. With the 150th now gone and the two Axis supply routes reopened through the minefield, the next day, June 2nd, the 90th Light Trieste and three armored reconnaissance regiments from the 17th Infantry Pavia Division started getting into place. The encirclement of the Free French had begun. That morning of June 2nd, the Germans approached Bir Hakim from the south, the Italians from the north. Then two officers from the Italian side walked up to the defensive perimeter and asked Koenig to surrender. He refused. With that refusal, both sides let loose with their artillery. But as the Germans had medium artillery, they simply stayed out of range of the Axis guns and kept firing. Also, Axis aircraft bombed the Free French, who already had their heads down due to the incoming artillery. Thank goodness, they thought, for those underground tunnels. As the Germans and Italian troops spread out to attempt to surround Bir Hakim completely, this actually made it easier for the Allied fighters and bombers to harass them. Soon, hulks of trucks, tanks, and downed planes surrounded the Free French position, who had had the title changed to Fighting French early in May. On June 3rd, Tomahawks of 5 Squadron, South African Air Force, shot down close to 10 enemy aircraft. The Allies lost only five. The air battle was intense, as it was mostly the only relief Bir Hakim was going to get. The next day, June 4th, as both ground troops exchanged shells, the Allied fighters continued to deflect incoming Axis air attacks, while also hitting Axis convoys and vehicles. That day, an Axis ammunition dump was destroyed within sight of the French. Koenig sent the signal, Bravo, merci pour la RAF. The reply was, merci pour le sport, for the sport. However, on June 5th and 6th, most of the Allied Air Force was involved in the Battle of the Cauldron and protecting the Knight's Bridge box just to the northeast of the Cauldron. 
On June 6th at 11 a.m., the 90th Light Division came directly at Bear Hakim, as the Battle of the Cauldron was already going Rommel's way. The lead panzer elements penetrated the outer minefield and got to within 800 meters or 874 yards of the main fort. But concentrated French small arms fire forced the would-be attackers to keep their heads down, which affected their overall attack. When the cauldron proved to be a disaster, Ritchie thought for a moment of telling Koenig to retreat, but Auchinleck said no. Let the access focus on it. That gives us time. A hard call, to be sure, but sacrifice is always possible in war. Still, on June 7th, the Desert Air Force sent four raids against the Germans, semi-trapped in the minefield. That evening, the last supply convoy got through the German lines. After that, a thick fog rolled in, but Rommel was determined to use that fog the way the convoy had. Soon, Panzers, 88mm gun crews, and the German pioneers, like those trapped, were lining up, waiting for the order to attack. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. By the morning of June 8th, the failure of Ritchie's Operation Aberdeen was over, though not the confusion it caused. So as Ritchie attempted to straighten things out, Rommel had the 15th Panzer and the German engineers, called the Group Hecker, commanded by Colonel Hecker, move forward. That morning, Rommel, coming from the north this time, got as close as the thick fog would let him. Still, he had all available artillery firing on the various buildings and emplacements. The Luftwaffe also joined in with a massive bombardment. At one point, 58 bombers of various types, led by 54 Italian and German fighters, pounded the French complex. When Rommel had his men move out at 10 a.m., again after hours of an artillery attack, his objective was a slight rise within the perimeter. If he could set up large guns there, the damage he could inflict might turn the tide. But the Chadian and Congolese troops there fought back and stayed hidden, never running away. This went on throughout the day, with many of the Free French forces falling, but those that survived would not be moved. Koenig countered Rommel by cheering his men on, but reporting that his troops were exhausted running low on supplies, and they needed more air cover. The Allied planes flew just over 400 sorties that afternoon and night, trying to keep the perimeter intact. 
With this going on, Douglas Boston medium bombers, a multi-purpose American plane, dropped supplies. Specifically, hurricanes from No. 6 Squadron went after Axis ground positions. As these hurricanes had 40mm anti-tank guns, the Axis lost, because of those guns, several German vehicles, four tanks, and three half-track troop carriers. However, when the air battle ended that day, the Allies had lost eight fighters and two bombers. The Axis lost two German and one Italian aircraft. The next morning, June 9th, Rommel had another air attack launched. This one made up of 20 bombers and 40 dive bombers, escorted by 50 fighters of various kinds. This was to give the rest of the 15th Panzer Division time to get into position. With that done, a two-pronged attack was commenced. Their goal was point one eight six on the northwest corner of the French perimeter, where Koenig had a fire control team directing the fire of his large guns. Throughout the day, Axis soldiers got ever closer to point one eight six. By the afternoon, the survivors there only had hand grenades and small arms. Koenig sent parts of the 22nd North African Company to boost their strength, but they would end up joining the original defenders in retreating from point 186. Rommel's concentrated fire and direct attack won that day's objective. To be sure, Ritchie had tried something to help. Sending the 7th Motor and 29th Indian Brigade Group closer to the 90th Light's position, that division was forced to turn some of their guns to meet this new threat. If Bir Hakim felt any relief, it's doubtful, they noticed. Yet he, Rommel, had other successes that same day as well. While the fighting had been going on for point one eight six, two battalions of the Rifle Regiment 115th approached the southern perimeter, and though they lost many men, by night they had established themselves about 200 meters from the main fort. Also from another direction, German infantry, following behind a moving artillery barrage, pierced the 9th Company's defensive lines, and it seemed the entire defensive position was about to be rolled up. But suddenly, a Bren carrier led a counterattack, which pushed back this particular breach. Still, by that night, Koenig could see the writing on the wall. Besides, many of the planes of the Desert Air Force were now being serviced and were unavailable to help him. He spoke with Messervy, commander of the 7th Armored Division, and it was decided that the French would break out that night at 11 p.m. But Koenig insisted on air cover during the escape. Messervy could not promise this. Again, the planes were in need of attention, so the breakout would have to wait until the next night, June 10th. The fighting French would head south at first. So, a plan of retreat was in place, but first the French would have to survive the daylight hours, and some of them would not. As the day went by, with Rommel's forces closing in on various sides, the defenders were getting down to their last 75mm rounds, as well as their mortar rounds. Still, what made the morning bearable was a desperate counterattack that kept the invaders at bay, at least for a few more hours. Then came hell from heaven.
That afternoon, Rommel had the largest air raid launched of the entire Battle of Bir Hakim. Some 100 Stukas dropped 132 tons of bombs. Rommel could sense the weakness of the defenders, but refused to send in his panzers. He reasoned they would only be lost to the mines with nothing to show for it. No, he would be patient, for on June 11th he expected Bir Hakim to fall. As soon as the sun went down on June 10th, French sappers began to clear a path on the western side of the perimeter. The escapees would meet up with the 7th Motor Brigade that were stationed about four miles south of the fort. Thus, the fighting French, which had held out magnificently, would head west, then south, jump into the waiting lorries, and finally head east, beyond, to Brook. However, two companies of the Free French had to remain behind, so the bug-out would not be obvious. But the pathway of cleared mines was taking longer than planned for. Thus, Koenig said, make the path more narrow, but keep going. The men and wounded started leaving at 8 p.m. Koenig gave over command to Colonel Dmitri Amilkavari, the foreign legion commander, and he, Koenig, left at the head of a column. His driver was Susan Travers, an Englishwoman. Of course, Rommel had his men on the lookout for something like this. The escaping column was quickly spotted. The Axis sent up flares nearby, and the Germans and Italians in that area started to fire. There was nothing for it but for the various columns to make best speed. In their haste, three lorries of the headquarters column hit mines. The rest kept going. Just as Koenig met up again with the main column, a report reached him that the 90th Light Division was in their way. There was no time for finesse or feints. Koenig ordered full speed ahead. As the vehicles of the Free French resembled panic prey, Koenig's captains led individual charges, and those officers would be captured, but they had pushed back the surprised Axis forces before them. Again, in their panic and haste, the ambulances and lorries got separated, but they knew to head east. Thus, in time, most were found and put on the right path. In this case, literally. By the morning of June 11th, most of the Free French were on their way to Bir El Gubi, due east. By that afternoon, they were beyond the reach of Rommel. Of the 3,600 men, some 2,700 got away, which included the wounded and some parts of British patrols that had been separated and lost for the last few days. Like a miniature Dunkirk, victory here had been defined by a successful escape. Still, the Free French, now solidified as the Fighting French, had held out since the day Rommel had swung his armor around the southern end of the defensive line. Further, they repulsed attack after attack. Yes, they had been helped by 1,500 sorties of the Desert Air Force and actions taken by the 7th Motor Brigade in terms of supplies, but that was what the British were figuring out. The elements of total war, which increases the projected power of any given army. Even better, de Gaulle used this successful escape as an example, to stand above and apart from Vichy. 
If you wanted to fight the oppressors, join the fighting French. If you wanted to live in fear, well, Vichy was accepting applications as well. The next day, June 12th, Auchinleck said, The United Nations need to be filled with admiration and gratitude in respect for these French troops and their brave General Koenig. Still, Rommel finally had Bir Hakim to himself, but it had cost him more to take than for Ritchie to lose. The French suffered 141 dead, 229 wounded, and 814 lost as POWs. The Desert Air Force lost just over 100 aircraft. Rommel lost 3,300 dead, 227 captured, 164 vehicles gone, and 49 aircraft shot down. Still, the southern section of the Gazala battlefield belonged to him. It must be said that Hitler had sent an order to Rommel that said all political refugees were to be killed outright. But the more honorable warrior in North Africa tore up the note before anyone could read it. On June 11th, Ritchie wrote to Auchinleck, inviting him to send over an officer to Gambit to better understand his current situation. Of course, there's a good chance that on June 11th, Ritchie did not have a true account of how many men and tanks he had lost up to this point. But Auchinleck, again, sensing something was off, decided to come himself the next day. What Ritchie did not know, but Rommel had a better idea of, was that the 8th Army had lost its tank superiority. Rommel believed he had 219 tanks, all kinds, compared to Ritchie's 248 tanks, all kinds. So much for the 2 to 1 advantage. Once again, it was time to make for Tobruk. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So we just got back last night from San Diego, had an amazing time. The town is amazing. And as you can imagine, we went to the Midway Carrier there, the museum. Absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, you almost can see it a few times and still pick up on new stuff. I would like to thank Tim DeMassey Sr., who works there. He showed me around. He took me, oh, my God, he took me on a two- or three-hour tour, and then my family showed up, and then he took us on another hour-and-a-half tour, and then he had to go do his regular job that day, so uh, his regular shift. So a former Marine, this man is tough. And obviously, I'll be putting a lot of pictures up on Facebook and Twitter and things like that, but I wanted to thank him again for an incredible experience, um, and I will get those pictures out uh, as soon as I can. Take care, everyone. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.